I'm not sure how you feel uh, this evening. Perhaps after uh, the news of today and, and, and tonight, perhaps some of you come a little bit discouraged. Um, whether because of the things that are going on in our church at the moment or uh, things in your own life, you might feel uh, discouraged by the perhaps apparent smallness or, or weakness of the church worldwide, um, that it's somehow overlooked. Perhaps you're a little discouraged by the what seems to be the rampant evil in our world here in the last century. It just seems way out of whack. Perhaps you're disappointed by God or with God. Why would he bring his kingdom into the world you know, through Jesus and then just kind of let it get marginalized, apparently, sort of hidden, shoved into a corner? At least that's perhaps how it seems sometimes. Maybe you're discouraged by your own reticence to share um, the, the joy you've found in Jesus. And you're, you're frustrated with yourself. Whatever context you find yourself in, there's a reticence there, a, a shyness perhaps, an anxiety, a, a shame perhaps you feel about the gospel. No matter which one of these you might identify with, there may be something else that is, that is similar. I think all of these feelings are symptomatic of um, the conviction that we all share, that we all have, that the gospel is meant to be in the open. That the good news of Jesus, the good news of his kingdom is meant to be disclosed. It's not right that it should be shoved off into the corner somewhere. It's not right that it should be clamped inside my own heart and my own mind. There's something wrong with that. And as we're going through the parables, Jesus addresses this very issue, this very uh, tension that we feel within ourselves of what the kingdom that we see and, the, and, and what we believe it to, the role it should have. When, tonight I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We've been uh, looking through the four parables of Jesus in this chapter. Last week, uh, Scott walked us through the first one. And these parables in the Gospel of Mark in particular are there to exegete or to unpack or to explain, to interpret for us what God's kingdom is all about, what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to look on the ground, and what its, um, what its ultimate goal, what its ultimate function is to be. And secondly, the second important aspect of these parables is how we hear the parables. What effect, what impact does it have on us as we hear this message about what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, what the good news of Jesus is supposed to be about? How do we receive that? How do we align ourselves with it? The sayings here in Mark 4 and verse 21 through 25, which is our text for tonight, are initially a bit obscure and a bit hard to wrap our minds around. I had a bit of a wrestling match myself this week um, with trying to figure out what on earth is going on here. Let me just read the text for us. And then let's try to understand what Jesus is saying. So after the parable of the sower, which is or the soils or seed, depending on how you uh, look at it, Jesus then continues his teaching to his disciples and perhaps also to the crowd that's gathered there. He says to them, this is Mark 4, 21, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you even more. And whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Fairly straightforward, right? 
can sort of just go home now. We've basically got the gist of it. This is not, this is not initially clear what Jesus is saying here, especially take these first two verses here. He said to them, do you bring a lamp and put under a bowl or a bed? That seems like a ridiculous thing. That's not what you do with a lamp. You don't stick it under a bowl or a bed. You, you put it on its stand so everyone can see. But then notice what he goes on to say. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. Now, why would he follow up this fairly apparently clear statement about a lamp with this statement, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed? Whatever is concealed is meant to be brought into the open. Is he saying, what's the for doing there? Is he saying that the lamp actually is under a bowl and needs to be uncovered? Um, And what is the lamp? What is that representing? What is he talking about here? Um, These couple of sayings here are, are, amongst others in the Gospels, give us a little bit of a window into the reality that Jesus probably spoke and taught uh, similar kinds of things in a number of different contexts. Some of the parables he told, stories he told, um, some of his sayings had a different function in different places. He would use similar ideas and similar analogies in, in different contexts in different ways. And this particular saying about you know, bringing a lamp in and sticking it under a, a bushel is used also in Matthew and Luke, but in a very different way. And when we read this text, we might initially jump to Matthew, for instance. That's maybe the more familiar text. Uh, in Matthew 5, you might, you might recall Jesus says, you are the light of the world, Right? A city on a hill should not be hidden. You don't put a light under a bushel, but you put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. It's got kind of a missional, evangelistic uh, connotation to it in Matthew 5. You don't, you don't hide a light under a bushel. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before men so they would see your good deeds and glorify God. That's what's going on in Matthew. And so Matthew, Matthew later, in, a, in another passage later on in Matthew, in chapter 10, he'll take the second saying that we have here in Mark, and, uh, and uses it in a similar kind of a missional context. So he says, what I tell you in secret, proclaim from the rooftops. So that which is right now disclosed, proclaim it from the rooftops. So let the good news be heard. All right. And in this, Matthew kind of calls us to, to be the light to the nations. Share the gospel. Be open about it. In Luke, it's got kind of a different sort of a, a, a function, a different sort of a, a message so Luke in chapter 12 is speaking about, the, Jesus in Luke 12 is talking about the Pharisees and how hypocritical they are. And Jesus says that what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you've whispered in the ear will be proclaimed from the rooftops. It's very similar to Matthew, but in, in Luke, it's got this sense of your sin is going to be uncovered. All the things that are secret for you, that you try to protect, so no one finds out about God knows, and one day the lid's going to be blown off and everyone's going to see. So these two sayings here in Mark appear, it function differently in Matthew. In Matthew, it's evangelistic. In Luke, you've got this sense of your sin being uncovered, your sin being disclosed. So what's going on here in Mark? Um, you might think as well, you know, maybe the lamp is, if it's not sort of the gospel of evangelism and it's not uh, you know, my sin being disclosed, maybe it's just you know, scripture, the Bible. Right? You think of Psalm 119. Your word is a light to my path, your lamp for my feet. But in Mark, of course, the word, which is the seed in, in the previous parable, is particularly Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. And I think that's an important context for understanding what's going on here in Mark. Because in Mark, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. And he's got four parables to try to unpack for us, explain for us what his kingdom is all about. He's got the parable of the sowers, and then he's going to go on and teach after this sayings about the lamp. He's going to go on in verse 26 and say, here's what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed and it grows mysteriously. He doesn't know how. 
A mustard seed. It's really small and insignificant. It plants, you plant it in the ground, it grows into a great tree. It's the largest tree in the garden. This is what the kingdom is like, he's saying. So all four of these stories, the sower, the lamp, the, the seed that's planted, and the mustard seed, are all Jesus telling us what the kingdom is like. I'd suggest then, probably the, the best way of understanding the lamp here in, in chapter 4 is the lamp is the kingdom of God that has been brought into the room and it's been covered up somehow. But it's not meant to be that way. Now, to, let's take a step back, because that might strike you as a bit, I've never heard that before, because we're really familiar with Matthew in particular, Matthew's version of it. But in Mark, Jesus messes about the kingdom. His word, his, the good news that he wants to bring about the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is now here. Okay, the kingdom has been brought into the room. God has come. His rule is being established through me, Jesus says. He starts way back in Mark 1. The kingdom of God has come among you. Repent. Believe this good news. God is doing something fundamentally different. The hinge point of history has occurred in Jesus. God's rule has invaded the world. He's making a huge change. His will is now being done in ways it hasn't been done before. He's establishing his throne in the world. It's like God has invaded the planet. You might have heard this analogy before. It's like, you know, the, the allies that land on the beaches of Normandy. As soon as that happens, the war is officially, it's, it, it's uh, essentially over. It just has to be some mop-up job until we get to VE Day. God has landed on the beaches of Normandy. The kingdom of God has invaded. But we're still waiting for the final, you know, VE Day in May. And there's a number of signs of this happening. What does the kingdom look like? What does God's rule look like when he comes and establishes his rule in the world through Jesus? It looks like people being delivered. It looks like people being restored. So in the chapters before chapter 4 here in Mark, we see Jesus delivering people from demonic oppression, from the power of evil and darkness, from leprosy, from blindness, from death, from social alienation. Jesus is going about restoring withered hands, He's going about restoring people who have a profound disease that infects their hearts such that their hearts are hard or shallow or cluttered. Think of the different kinds of soil in the previous story from last week in the parable of the sower. Jesus is releasing people from the oppression of the ruling themselves or from the lust or love of power and sort of lording it over others. He's freeing and restoring us from those things. This is what the kingdom looks like. It looks like restoration from those powers. It looks like life. Jesus, in his coming, is bringing the light into the house. But there's an interesting feature of Jesus coming and his bringing the kingdom into the world. Because if you read Mark closely and carefully, there's this interesting dimension where it seems like while on the one hand, he's bringing this light and this restoration and this redemption, all this great stuff is happening. On the other hand... He's hushing it up. He wants to keep things on the down low, keep things quiet. So when he casts out the demons from the man in chapter 1, the demons come out and they say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's like, you know, they're holding up the light. Everyone, look, this is the Holy One of God. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Jesus says, be quiet. Stop speaking. When Jesus raises the little girl from the dead, before he does anything, he says, put everyone else out of the house. Just your mother and father and a couple of disciples can come in with me. Everyone else out of the house. I don't, want to see, I, don't want them, I don't want them to see what's going on here. It's a bit odd, isn't it? Jesus kind of hushes things up. He doesn't want people 
to um, broadcast this when he heals the leper in Mark chapter 1. He says, now don't tell anybody. Just go present yourself to the priest and be ceremonially cleaned. But don't, you know, don't blab about this all over the place. It's quite strange. But the reason Jesus does this is because he knows if the message goes out that God's rule has come in the world and that he, Jesus, is establishing this rule and that he is God's king, people are going to get the wrong idea because they've got a twisted view about what God's rule is going to look like. They're going to get the wrong idea of the kind of king that he is. And he wants them to know, not only has God's kingdom invaded the world, but it's a completely different kind of kingdom than you envisaged. It's a different kind of kingship. It's one that's characterized by the cross. It's one that's characterized by servanthood, by weakness. The light has come into the room, but it's under a bushel. This is unexpected for the disciples. Because, of course, they expect when the God's kingdom comes, when he sets up his throne in the world, it's going to be great. It's going to be visible for everybody. It's going to be powerful. There's going to be blazing light. And we want to be part of the show. Well, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, uh, two of his disciples will say later in Mark, we want to be on your right and your left hand in your glory so we can get some of the, you know, the accolades along with you. Because these disciples, these Jewish people, they grew up you know, hearing from their, in their synagogues, from the rabbis and from their mothers and the fathers as they taught them as children. They heard texts like the text in Isaiah 52, where God says, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? When God comes to set up his rule, everyone's going to see it. Everyone's going to know. These disciples, they grew up hearing these texts. And now Jesus goes about saying, the kingdom has come. This is rather unexpected. If he's like hushing people up, he doesn't want people to know about the kingdom in one sense. So Peter is going to go on to say in Mark chapter 8, he's like, so Jesus, remember, remember in Mark 8, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, now look, I know that you realize that I'm the king, that I'm the Messiah. Now this is what I've got to do. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. Going to be handed over, going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. They're going to kill me. And what does Peter do? He says, well, "Hang on, just a second here. That's not what the kingdom's supposed to look like. That's not the sort of king you're supposed to be. What are you doing, Jesus?" And Jesus says, to him, "Get behind me, Satan! You do not have in mind the things of God. You don't understand what the kingdom is supposed to be like." And I suspect that the readers of Mark's gospel. The people who he had in mind as he writes this gospel struggled with this just like Peter did. Mark writes this gospel just a few decades after Jesus had died, crucified and resurrected. There's maybe only five, six, seven hundred, five, six, seven thousand Christians in the whole world at the time. There's a few Christians in Rome huddled in you know, upper rooms afraid that you know, Nero or following emperors are going to burn them at the stake or throw them to the lions or whatnot. Things don't look that impressive. They know there's something special about Jesus, but they struggle with the fact that I don't see it. God, why did you bring your kingdom and then just let it be sort of marginalized to the side? 
Did it really happen? So Mark's readers are struggling with this. And we struggle with this, do we not? God, are you really at work in the world? Is your kingdom really come? Is your will really being done? Why do things seem so weak? Why do you seem so distant? Why is there so much darkness? Why is the church, you know, seems so small in the world? Why do I have this, you know, shame I feel when I, about sharing the gospel? Because I know that most people out there are going to laugh at me. It's not right. We struggle with this. This is where the parables come in. Jesus teaches parables precisely to address this issue. Jesus recognizes that this message about the kingdom, that he's brought God's rule, is unexpected and surprising. His message is, the kingdom is here. I've started, God is starting a new thing through me. To which the disciples, Mark's readers, and we respond, really? Really? I mean, is that really what's happened? The world is still so dark. The light seems so dim. It's as though someone brought in a lamp only to put it under a bushel. And in these parables, Jesus addresses that. So the sower who sows seeds. This is a very fragile image, is it not? The sower sows seeds all over the place and it can be rejected by the hard ground, by the thorny ground, by the shallow ground. It can be withered and die Plants that are planted in the, in the parable that follows this one, uh, we, don't know how, we don't know how it mysteriously grows, but it seems like a very, very fragile thing. There's plants are growing. I mean, you could just take, come along and just mow the lawn and, and it's gone. A mustard seed, the smallest, one of the smallest seeds, Jesus says, is as insignificant, it's small, it's easily overlooked. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this. Small and insignificant, easily overlooked, vulnerable, fragile. It can be rejected. And so this parable of the lamp fits into this context. Look with me again at verses 21 and 22. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Jesus is saying here, the fact is, the lamp has been hidden. The kingdom of God has come, but it's hidden. It's come in an unexpected way. And he, 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 he identifies with their incredulity over that. And when he, when he says, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? It seems like a ridiculous thing to do. Surely you wouldn't do something like that. And said, don't you put it on its stand? That's a logical thing to do with the lamp. But he goes on and says, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And in this second verse, he qualifies the first one. He said, he's saying that actually, that's the reality. The lamp is hidden. But it's hidden so that it can be disclosed. So that it can be uncovered. It's as though someone's brought in a lamp, but it's hidden under a bushel. But it will one day be disclosed. This is similar to the other parables. Right? So the seed that's sown amongst various soils, one day it will reap a harvest, 30, 60, 100 fold. The mustard seed, small and significant, easily overlooked. One day it will grow into a great tree. The lamp's brought in, it's apparently hidden, but it will be disclosed. It's meant to be disclosed. It has that purpose. There will be a final disclosure, Jesus is saying. 
I know this is unexpected, the way God's kingdom has come. I know it seems small, easily overlooked, but it will be disclosed. It's meant to be uncovered. What does Jesus mean by that? I think he means that finally, at the end of all time, one day, God is going to peel back the curtain and we're going to see that all along, the lamp was there in profound ways that we had no idea. One day, God is going to peel back the curtain. We're going to realize that his kingdom had spread in all kinds of ways that we were blind to, that we didn't see. All the good stuff that has happened through human history, all the justice that's been done, all the creative work that's been done, it's going to turn out in the final analysis at the end of time to all belong to God. Things are not as they seem, Jesus is saying. It might look like things are covered, but there are things going on that are beyond your vision. There are unseen forces at work that are unstoppable, powerful, and one day you're going to see it. God has invaded. He's landed on the beach. One day, the whole world's going to see how the story ends. Well, it's quite important to Jesus, then, not only to speak this, but that his disciples and that we hear it properly. Notice what he goes on to say. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he continues after that, consider carefully what you hear. Listen carefully to what I'm saying, Jesus says. You know, we might, I suspect all of us here, to some degree, find this idea, although it might be fairly fairly familiar to those of us who have been, you know, in the church for a long time. To some degree, we all still wrestle with the tension of this apparent weakness of God, apparent smallness of the kingdom, apparent hiddenness of God in the world. It's offensive to us. It scandalizes us in a way. We're troubled by this. And the surprise of the kingdom that Jesus brings, reflected in this parable, offends us because it calls into question our understanding of kingdoms. It calls into question our understanding of God. Deep down, probably a lot of us expect God to show up like, I don't know, Captain America or something, who everybody knows. This guy's got power. He's awesome. Let's, you know, build a new world with him. Um, Deep down, we want a God like that. It's reflected in sort of our, our, uh, well, sort of popular ideas, I suspect. But Jesus says, be careful how you hear. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. And there's a few options open to us as hearers of this parable. Either we embrace this scandalous reality, scandalous uh, kind of characterization of God's kingdom and how Jesus comes as the kind of the primary way in which God works in the world. Either we embrace that or reject it as a distortion. We can either stand on this scandalous message or it becomes a rock of offense over which we trip. And how you hear this will indicate your discipleship, how much and how far you're willing to follow Jesus. Why do I say that? Because, of course, the way Jesus goes is the way that we don't expect. He goes the way of the cross. The way God shows his power, his greatness, his authority, 
is by giving it up. Giving his life. Well, what does it mean then for us to hear this parable well? What does it mean to hear the parable well? Well, hearing these parables needs to be, uh, we need to read that in the context of what Jesus says earlier in verse 13, when he talks about understanding the parable. So this is in the earlier parable. Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Hearing and understanding in the context of parables are similar ideas. And to understand the parable or to hear it correctly doesn't mean just do you get the principle? Do you get the ideas? Do you sort of understand it cognitively? I mean, to the degree that I've been able to explain this more or less well, which to that degree is maybe up for, up for open for question, um, but, but you might, you know, all in the room reasonably be able to understand the concept, get the concept. That's not what Jesus means by careful how you hear. He doesn't mean you just you sort of understand, the, you get the principle. When he says be careful how you hear or understand, he means align yourself with this. Have you really brought your life, your whole understanding into alignment with this truth? That this is the way God works in the world. This is the kind of king he is. And this is the way he brings his great redemption. It means to, to, to understand, as, as Dale Bruner says, to understand the parables is to stand under them. Not to stand beside them or to stand over them, just sort of, you know, okay, I can cognitively get that. To stand under them, to allow them to shape our whole thinking. And this means believing that the kingdom has come, that God is actually acted in the world, and embracing that. Let me unpack those two things just briefly. Believing the kingdom is here. It means believing even when you don't understand. Believing that God is the kind of God who can pull this off. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God, through apparent weakness, through dying on a cross, can work the greatest reversal in history, can work the greatest restoration of all things, could save dark, empty souls, your experience of the world and of the church, of Christianity, working against that, or do you really believe that? That one day the curtain's going to be pulled back and everyone see the lamp. Not only believing that the kingdom is here, but also embracing this. Embracing this king, not just our own idea of the king, not our own idea of the kingdom, sort of this triumphalist version of Christianity. No, embracing this king who comes in the form of Jesus. Embracing this king who comes and dies on a cross. Embracing his kingdom. Have we really done that? See, the real indication of that is, you know, what, what, what is competing for Jesus' allegiance in your life? What kind of kingdom do you really actually owe your, have your, as your, let me put this another way. Which kingdom has your allegiance? Is it productivity? Prestige? Success. Those are fairly understandable kingdoms that most of the world has, has tried to establish and build up and to which they give their allegiance. What does your life reflect? Is your allegiance to that kind of God, that kind of kingdom? Or is your allegiance to a king who spends his power on a cross, whose light is apparently snuffed out? only to explode out from underneath that bushel at Easter. Is your allegiance to that king? And have you embraced his kingdom? 
embrace the kingdom that is characterized by littleness. That your life, all the decisions, all the choices in your life uh, reveal that you really believe the best way, the most powerful way, the greatest way to live is the way of apparent smallness and insignificance, the way of service, the way of hiddenness, the way of the cross. As Jesus will say later on to his disciples, anyone who comes after me, take up his cross daily and follow me. Come my way. Do you really honestly believe that that is the most powerful way to live? Jesus continues this challenge of hearing properly in the final two verses here, verses 24 and 25. When he says, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. This idea of, you know, the measure you use will be measured to you, I think unpacks this idea of hearing or understanding well, better. Unpacks it, not better, it unpacks it further. Um, some of Jesus' contemporaries, other Jewish leaders and teachers, um, had a very similar saying. They interpreted uh, a passage in the Old Testament, so Exodus 15, verse 6, um, in which um, God says, if hearing, you will hear. This is a passage in, in Exodus. And some of Jesus' you know, fellow rabbis and, and, and contemporaries interpreted this and said, this means that if you hear, you will go on hearing, because God puts more into a full vessel, but not an empty one. This is you know, some of other rabbis during the time of Jesus. Notice how they connect hearing with how full a vessel is. That when you hear properly, you'll hear more. Because God's the kind of God who, when your vessel is full, he pours more in. So the, some of the Jewish contemporaries are making this kind of a connection. I think there's the same thing going on here. What Jesus is saying is, the more that you accept and embrace what I'm telling you about the kingdom and who I am and the way I am king, the more you embrace, accept, and submit to this king and this kind of kingdom, the more of it you'll receive. The more you invest in this kingdom word, the more of it you will get. In that sense, hearing is like a, it's a capacity. How much of this can you take in? The more you align yourself with this, the more you open yourself up to hearing and understanding this, the more of it will shape you even more deeply. It's like a muscle. The more you use it, the more you have. The less you use it, you don't have it. Um, kingdom thinking is like a muscle. We're always moving either away from or toward hearing and understanding Jesus' words here. The choices you make, the decisions you make, the priorities that are reflected in your life are either moving you away or towards this reality, that Jesus comes in this way, that his kingdom looks this way. So in closing then, just a couple of words or a couple of suggestions on how do we hear this parable? How do we listen well? How do we attend to this parable? There's probably a number of things that could be said, but let me say three. Meditate long and hard on this truth, that the King of Kings did not come to be served, but to serve. 
King of Kings, when he came, did not come to be served, but to serve. Meditate on that. Secondly, I think an implication of this for us is that we cultivate a confidence that there are silent but irresistible forces at work, which may not be perceived by all, but one day all will be disclosed. This is the way God breaks in. This is the way he does his greatest work. It isn't that exactly like God, that he does his greatest work by the apparent weakness of death, dying on a cross. Do you really believe that? Cultivate a confidence that no matter how you feel, no matter how things look, no matter if you're, uh, you know, what might discourage you right now or frustrate you, the distance of the, uh, the apparent distance or quietness or silence or invisibility of God, Cultivate a confidence that there are silent but irresistible forces at work, which may not be perceived by all, but one, way, one day will be disclosed. God's kingdom has come. Has come through his servant Jesus. His son Jesus. And finally, disclose the light that is hidden. If the lamp is hidden, but it's meant to be disclosed, we as God's people partner with God in throwing that bushel off of the lamp. Let it be shown. Let it be seen. I'm unashamed of this gospel. I'm unashamed of what the world thinks is ridiculous. That God saves me by dying on a cross for me. I'm unashamed of that. Throw off the basket. Let that light be disclosed. And in doing that, we partner with God. Join Him in what will ultimately, he will finally you know, throw, the, throw the curtain back for all to see, but we are part of this revelation of the lamp. We're unashamed of it. The seeds are meant to grow. Even though they're small and insignificant, they're meant to grow into larger trees. The light is meant to be seen. So we're unashamed of this good news. And don't be surprised you know, by the mixed response that you'll receive from those in your workplace, from those in the world. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't be ashamed by that. When you get a mixed response, remember, the King of Kings did not come to be served, but to serve. And remember that we're cultivating a confidence that there are silent but irresistible forces at work, which may not be perceived by all, but one day will be disclosed. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we believe this evening that you have brought your kingdom into this world and that you are at work in ways which we cannot begin to imagine. Although everything may appear to the contrary sometimes, we believe that your king has come and that he has taught us the best way to live and that he is at work continuing to bring his kingdom in this world. I ask that you would give us courage, joy and hope for the final disclosure of this lamp and enable us to become shaped more like your son to be brought into alignment with his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen.